Hey team, welcome to the off-season. The off-season is an exploration of athletic health, recovery, and performance told through stories of athletes and their medical and training team. I hope you enjoy. Now for a quick but mandatory medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of naturopathic medicine or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. Use of this material is at user's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they may have and should seek assistance from their trusted healthcare professional for any condition. This podcast does not speak on behalf of naturopathic medicine and does not represent the views of the profession as a whole. Hey, what's up, guys? We're back with another episode of The Off Season. Sorry about the little hiatus there. I was working on another project that's very dear to my heart. Um, go check out at glass.lion if you are a coach of a young female athlete, a trainer to a young female athlete, or if you have young female athletes. I've put together a six-week program with a good friend of mine um, that walks these athletes through everything that they need to know in terms of nutrition, recovery, and puberty. So definitely check that out. That's what has been taking up some of my time. Um, but today I said down with Des DeSanto. So a good friend of mine, uh, Paul Lawson, put me in contact with this beauty. Um, and she is amazing. So she's played hockey for years. She walks through her whole story here and we get to see, you know, what life was like having to transition through sport, overcoming a huge, you know, negative experience with athletics and also where she's at now, how she's helping athletes recover from injury. She's a yoga teacher and really incorporating movement and recovery into athletes' lives. Definitely check this one out. You don't want to miss this one. I loved this conversation. Hey, Des, welcome to the off season. Thank you. I'm very, very honored to be here. I'm excited to have you here. I think like um, for podcasts, it's always so interesting because most of the guests that I have on here, I've never met before. We've only spoken maybe on the internet and just like a couple of timing things to get, you know, schedules organized and stuff like that. So it's always interesting to put the actual face and personality to the conversation. So I'm really excited to have you on and to chat about what you do couple texts and here we are. <laughs> exactly. Um, why don't you kind of give the listeners a little bit of a background on yourself and who you are? Okay. So my name is Des. Um, I was born and raised in Switzerland. And at the age of 18, I decided that I wanted to uh, move to North America to play hockey. And um, yeah, just really jumped on a plane um, after I got accepted to Buffalo State to play NCAA hockey. And um, my big dream uh, were the Olympics. So I was uh, training with the Swiss national team at the same time. And um, when that went to hell, <laughs> I kind of, that's really where my story began. So there were a couple of injuries involved and um kind of uh, finding who I was without hockey because I completely identified myself with what I was doing, which was playing hockey. And then um, after a couple stops all over the world, I came back to Switzerland nine years, no, wait, 21. So that would be 10 years ago. I returned to Switzerland and um, started working with athletes um, in the form of yoga here. That's so awesome. In a there's, yeah, there's so many things to unpack there for sure. So tell me how you like got started in hockey. Why was it hockey or, or tell me about like how that all came about? 
Um, I loved um, skating. So my sister took me skating a couple of times. She's 12 years older than I am. And then she took me to watch the games um, of the team that we have playing here. And I always wanted to play, but I was doing kind of like track and field. And before that, I was into ballet when I was really young and then modern because my aunt is teaching it. And then there was this um, one day after I went to uh, skate at the rink and I've met some of the guys that play hockey that I decided that I wanted to play as well. But I was already 12. Yeah, I was already 12. So super late. And it was, I remember it so perfectly because it was a summer night and I was having dinner with my mom and dad. And I just kind of told them, so listen, um, I want to play hockey. And they just kind of looked up from eating their supper and were like, no. (laughs) And that was the end of it. (laughs) Then, and then um, I called my sister because I organized to go play um, to the, with the closest women's team that we have here is about 20 minute drive and just kind of asked her, Hey, uh, so I want to play hockey, but I don't have anyone to drive because mom and dad are not a fan of my idea. Can you drive me? And of course she was like, yeah, sure. And then that was a dry land. So it was summer practice stills off season. And then from my first game on, my dad was there like the loudest fan in the stands to the point of where <laughs> my teammates were like, who is that guy yelling and banging on the boards? And I just sat there like, I, sure. I have no idea. I don't know who that is. <laughs> That's amazing. And like here for the most part, it's, it's not even a question, you know, if you want to play hockey, it's almost ingrained in your blood. So that's interesting to go from a ballet, you know, background into right into sports, but I'm sure kind of the athletic ability and strength in your legs would have been really helpful. Hey. It, it was. Um, so it was mainly track and field, um, but I was never like really super fast when it came to sprinting. Long distance was fine, but I always had a lot of raw strength um, and then it was just a matter of like skating and stick handling and the rest. Cause I had a, I I'm pretty tall and I'm, I have strong built. So it was a, uh, yeah, it was all from there. Definitely my, uh, my, my, uh, my body form helped me a lot. Yeah. That's so awesome. What about um, Olympic hopefuls? So I, coach so many young girls for hockey and I mean, a lot of sports actually specifically hockey for the most part, but you know, we always have this huge pipe dream of the Olympics or Team Canada or all of these um, ideals of making it to the furthest level of our sport. What was your headspace around that or what made you want to go for the Olympics? That's a great question. Um, I remember um, having this, it was Team Canada, having a poster of Team Canada winning the gold medal 98 in Nagano. Um, And just like, seeing them on TV and seeing that, like seeing that poster and just, I guess it kind of is ingrained in oneself to just be the best that you can. I feel like some people don't have that. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if it gets passed on to you from your parents or what it is, but for me, when it came to sports, I always wanted to, to be the best, not necessarily in school. In school, I was like, yeah, I'll just get good grades and, you know, put in the minimum work. But in sports, I just, 
it's passion. It's, it's a feeling that you get um, when you, when you went for me, when I saw, when I saw those women play and it, like, even today, when I watch a sports movie or, or the Olympics, I, you know, I cry. <laughs> it just does it for me. Some other people watch love stories and I just, you know, see um, a person achieve their dream through sports and it, you just get me. Yeah. I totally hear you. I'm right there with you. And, and I was of the same headspace. Like my dream was to play for team Canada one day. And I think it's lost on, well, it was lost on myself as a young athlete, but also a lot of the athletes that I talked to you of, you know, how difficult that dream is and how much work has to go into it and how much, you know, additional training. And just because you have some raw talent doesn't mean you're going to make it anywhere. Right. Yeah. I mean, especially in Canada, um, I think here in Switzerland, it, it's kind of a luxur luxurious situation because you don't have, well, first of all, we are smaller than any of your provinces and you don't have that many people playing hockey, but still like, right. Well, when I played and now even more, we are at the level where it's like, you want to be in that like roster that goes to the Olympics. So it's might be 22 people might be 25. Um, but obviously when you, when you first start playing, like you've literally just started playing. And then I remember I got an invitation to go play with the under 20 national team, I think. And so I was playing for maybe three years and we had a camp and after practice, we just kind of, uh, went into the room and talked about, you know, uh, how we want to play and stuff. And eventually they asked us, what's your goal? And all the girls that were there, they were like, oh, you know, I just kind of want to, you know, play under 20, na, na, na. And then they got to me and I was like, oh, Vancouver 2010. <laughs> they all looked at me like, what? They, oh, okay, let's write that down. <laughs> Definitely. I love that. And that's kind of what I'm trying to like convey to a lot of these. And I'm sure you're speaking a lot about it too, is these big, scary goals that you have to set out in the world. And I always say to the girls that I'm working with is, you know, you never know who's listening or you never know what coach has a connection to get you to the next level. And if you start to put it out into the world, anything can happen, right? The right person's listening, the right, you know, trainer is hearing you out and see how passionate you are. And then things kind of can start to fall into place for you. It's so scary though, oh, yeah. because, because then it's like, well, you better deliver. Mm -hmm. At least in, in Switzerland, we still have this like, perfectionism um, in our culture that I think is very harmful because it keeps, it keeps people from verbalizing their dreams because as soon as you do that, a lot of people tend to come up to you and be like, well, what if, it, what if you fail? No one asks, well, what if your dream does come true? Like, it's always like, what if you fail? Is that mind boggling that that's kind of like a response to these? And no matter what the goal is, it's very much so like, well, don't get ahead of yourself or don't get too excited about that because it's really hard to do. And it's such a discriminatory thing. Like you're, you're just trying to build this stuff and, and who literally who knows anything could happen, especially if kind of things align for you quite well. But yeah, it's always a disappointment that that's kind of the reaction. And then you get in your own head too. You start to build these false beliefs around what is possible too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. I felt a big difference in North America, though. It might have been because women's hockey was a lot bigger over there. So first of all, you, you're not like, oh, you're you're a girl and you play hockey. It's like, oh, you're a girl. You play hockey. Yeah, that's cool. Um, 
but definitely it kind of, you know, it's for, for young athletes. It's so, I wish those people would knew or would know what kind of damage they can do. I mean, I see it with my kids now. I mean, they're, they're four and two. Um, but if you, if you put that in their head already, it's like, well, oh, you want to be a doctor? Well, that's a hard thing to do. Like, just say nothing at all or say something positive. I think there has to be a big shift happening in, in our culture. Where yeah. I think you in North America are already a little bit further ahead compared to our little country here. Yeah, I, I hope or I hope there's some sort of advancement or change coming down the line because even in, you know, healthcare and sports and everyone that I work with, there's still this like thing that or story that we continue to tell ourselves that some has a derogatory comment in there, whether it's like, you're not good enough, you're not fast enough, you're not insert whatever, not good enough here. And I think that so many people are holding on to that too. So if we're you know, further advanced than Switzerland, that's a little bit scary too, because I just see it so rampant here as well, you know? Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. That, that is crazy. Oh, I wanted to touch on something there and I just lost my thought. It was going to come back to me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think too, like, I don't know, I guess probably you see athletes all of the time and, and what I work with is athletes predominantly. Um, and I think, I've been talking to a lot of them and a lot of younger ones and, and this goal setting approach, as you had said, is terrifying and try to reiterate that, you know, even if you don't make it to the Olympics, the work ethic and the everything that you put into it and, you know, being a leader on a team and putting, you know, the off ice in and all the education that you get from all of the sport is just going to do you so well. So you, you're gaining, despite maybe not fully making the Olympic team in the end, you're just absorbing so much information as you go. You learn like the keys to being a leader, the keys to worth work ethic. You learn so much along the way. And of course it's disappointing that you wouldn't make that ultimate goal but there's just so many lessons along the way that are invaluable hey in sports definitely i think what needs to happen is um <laughs> they they i mean the courage it takes a young athlete to verbalize their goal should already give them all the credit they need for the rest of their life because that's like the scariest thing to do mm -hmm. um and I really, I really like, you know, the Theodore Roosevelt quote that, you know, Brene Brown works with, like the, the man in the arena. Have you heard of that? I don't know. What's the rest of it? Oh, yeah. God, it's so, it's so long, but yeah. essentially it's like, um, um, the in the end, if you fail, at least you fail daring greatly. Yeah. That's kind of the essence of the quote. Mm -hmm. And that took me a very long time, like a very long time. And it's funny because, um, you know, I, I literally told everyone, like, I want to go to the Olympics. I'm going to go to, I play hockey. I'm going to go to the Olympics. I mean, my dad, in, it got to the point where my dad introduced me. Oh, this is Des. This is my daughter, Desiree. She plays hockey. She's training for the Olympics. So then they, well, I can tell you exactly what day it was, October 4th. 2009 comes along after camp and the new roster gets projected onto the PowerPoint and your name's not on it. So who you are now. Yeah. Tell me about that experience. And, 
Well, <laughs> I was in shock. I didn't realize what was happening. I mean, I was just sitting there looking at the roster and then it's like, okay, my name's not on there. And then it's just like blank. And all the, all my teammates are like, Oh my God, are you, are you okay? And I'm like, what is happening with you guys? Like, why are you all like, I'm fine. And I only started realizing, or my body only started processing what just happened when we said, you know, goodbye to everyone. And then the floodgates just opened and I just lost it. And when I came home, um, I was still living with my parents because I returned to Switzerland to train with, uh, with the national team. <laughs> the first thing my dad is like, oh, that's not the end of the world. You know, my dad that has always been there, drove me everywhere, introduced me to everyone as the hockey player training for the Olympics. Like, oh, that's not the end of the world. I'm like, what? Excuse me? And I just yelled, it is the end of my world right now. And I just, I think the scariest part was that I didn't know who I was without that. And someone took it away from me within seconds. I, and I, I couldn't do anything about it. I was just like helpless. Yeah. It was just gone. Mm-hmm. I and then, Go ahead. And then you're all alone in dealing with that. Like I even a couple months later, the national team coach contacted me and we had a meeting. He's like, you know, I just wanted to give you a couple of weeks of time um, to digest what happened. And I just, I think it's really important for you to know that every day you can get up and look in the mirror, knowing that you did everything that you could. That didn't do anything for me either. <laughs> yeah. And I sat in my room, I was like, what now? what now yeah i think that's a really you know resounding theme for a lot of athletes when their sport is you know injury wise taken from them or you know lifestyle wise or they don't make a team it's and for years and years and years like those who don't play athletics i mean you're told when to eat when to wake up when to get on the bus when to pack your bag when to do your schoolwork when to so literally anything outside of this, I almost had no clue who I was when I stopped playing hockey because everyone told me what to do my entire life. And I didn't even know what I liked or disliked. And honestly, I'm still trying to figure out some of those things. I didn't know what my favorite color was even. I was, and it was, (laughs) there was so many defining moments, but um, I remember after might've been a month, I was still playing um, for the club here. I wasn't on the national team anymore, but I was still playing because I had signed a contract for the season. But every time I went to go pack my bag, I just, I just wanted to ball. I didn't want to look at my skates anymore. I, I was just, I was miserable. I really was. And I called my friend in Canada and he's like, so how's it going? I'm like, well, it's not going well. And I don't, I like, I hate, I don't want to play hockey anymore. He's like, so why are you playing? I'm like, well, I have a team relying on me. I signed a contract and he he was quiet for a second and he goes, Des, if you're not happy, you're no good to anyone. And it doesn't matter if you sign a contract or your teammates are relying or you're not, if you're not happy, don't do it. You need to, you need to, you need to do what makes you happy now more than ever. And I'm like, who who do you think you are? Like, why are you telling me this stuff? Because I want to, Comfort, right? 
mm-hmm. I wanted him to be like, yeah, I understand. It's hard, blah, 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 blah. But he told me exactly what I needed to hear. And that was right before Christmas. So then I quit. I stopped because I literally, I felt nothing when I was going on the ice, just nothing. And the funny thing is, looking back now, I have this habit of running, like running in a form of relocating myself to a different spot when I don't like it anymore there. I don't do that, I think, anymore. Um, But then I found a job back in Canada um, starting in January 2010. So in February was the Olympics um, in Vancouver. And I packed my bags, uh, beginning of January, hopped on a plane and got off the plane, went through immigration. And the guy checking my passport goes, oh, you're going to the Olympics. And I'm like, no, no, (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no. You got the visa. Everything is all because I had been on the long list, they'd issued my visa already oh, wow. for Vancouver. And I was literally like standing there trying to hold my tears back. I'm like, I'm really not going to the Olympics. Can I please have my passport back now? Oh, no. Okay, here you go. That's brutal. Just another kind of like sharp slap in the face, hey? <laughs> More like a punch. Yeah, and then you came to Canada, you got here and, and what was in store for you? And I was still, um, I was still uh, healing my injuries. So when I was, uh, when I was uh, training with the national team, it was a year before that we were in, where were we? We were here in Switzerland, the first playing Team Canada, an exhibition game. And I had um, just very slightly torn my MCL, like, tape job you're fine it hurts but it's gonna be okay like you don't have to miss any games whatever and then we went to Germany to play the Air Canada Cup and we played Sweden it was the first game first period and I was on the ice um I'm a def- I was a defenseman so I um went and got the puck off the boards but at the same time uh one of the Swedish players came and cross-checked me into the boards so I kind of fell shoulder first into the boards Got up, I was like, okay, like I wasn't out, I'm fine, go change. And every time my shoulder pad kind of hit over my AC joint very lightly, I was so painful. Like, oh God, what is this? So, intermission, I went um, to the doctor and said, oh, can I just, can I get some ice? I just have to ice my shoulder. And he's like, let me have a look at that. I'm like, yeah, really, it's fine. I just need some ice. <laughs> so I took off my shoulder pads and he kind of looked at me from a distance. He's like, yeah, you're not playing anymore. I'm like, excuse me? He's like, you're not playing anymore. Like your collarbone is slightly up. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say it's probably second degree, rup- not ruptured, you know, like second degree is not really, you could see a difference in the collarbone, but he's like, we got to tape it down. You're not moving this arm anymore. And I went into back in the locker room and everyone's like getting ready, putting their equipment back. I'm like, okay, I am not playing anymore, bawling my eyes out. And I still had a lot of pain in my shoulder. My knee was pretty fine, but I didn't, I never really rested. 
Um, so I had physio and did all of the stuff that you do when you have an injury. They even put in the summer before that, they put cortisone in it. So I got a shot of cortisone to make it better. It wouldn't go away. Like my upper trap was just cement. Um, and I was still working on that. And it just, it, it, it didn't get better at all. And when I came to Canada, um, I started working uh, for a catering company as an event manager. And at the same time, I started seeing a naturopathic doctor. Awesome. I don't I have to it. tell you how that works. <laughs> Um, but my shoulder was, a, was a, a theme that kept coming up and up and up. And it wasn't until I discovered yoga um, that I realized or learned about the connection of your emotions in your body and how they're stored. Because, and that's, the, that's kind of where my journey as a yoga teacher started. It was a, a forest yoga class and I had an amazing teacher in Ottawa, Louise Cameron. Um, I went to her class I went to a lot of yoga, yoga classes and I didn't like them. I only liked the yin classes, even though they were so painful, but that stretching made me feel amazing. Mm. And it was the only time that my mind was quiet. Um, and then she did this in Shavasana at the end of the class, she did this little adjustment in my shoulder and it felt like heaven. Like, I don't know what she did. And I went up to her and like, you know, it felt really good what you did to my shoulder and um, that's how I got into it. So I would attend yoga classes regularly uh, because I, it would make me feel good. It made my body feel good and it made my mind feel good, but it was only the forest yoga classes. And when I got to the point in my job where every time I came into the office, my shoulder started hurting. <laughs> I know, duh, <laughs> like wake up already. Eh? It takes um, time. <laughs> I, went, I, went to see, I went to see my naturopath and she's like, okay, like tell me what's going on now. And I told her about the shoulder again. And so she took a couple needles and just, you know, I think about three or four needles and just put them in there and left me in the room just sitting um, on the bed there. And as soon as she closed the door, I started bawling. It was just like <laughs> Niagara Falls all over again. Um, and she came back after maybe 20 minutes and I told her what would happen. She's like, and? I'm like, and what do you mean, and? She's like, your body's trying to tell you something. So eventually um, I realized that there was a connection between my surroundings and what's going on inside. And I quit after 10 months, I quit. And I didn't know what to do. Like I knew I wanted to stay in Canada, but it kind of like, okay, well, I can't stay here um, as a tourist forever. So what am I gonna do? And my forest yoga teacher actually offered um, to do the uh, training, teacher training with me one-on-one -on -one over the course of six weeks. Um, out of out of the blue, like I never considered myself as a yoga teacher because, you know, the the picture that usually comes to mind when you think of a yoga teacher is some crazy position, possibly on a rock in front of an ocean. I'm like, this is so not me. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, you would make a great yoga teacher, and I didn't I didn't understand, and kind of just blew it off until 
three other, no, two other people within that week. One was my friend living here in Switzerland, literally on a mountain that she has never done yoga before. She was like, oh, so what are you going to do now? Why don't you become a yoga teacher? I'm like, you don't know anything about yoga. Why do you want me to become a yoga teacher? <laughs> and then the other one was my aunt that had taught me dance classes when I was little. She's like, Son, and she came up to me and she's like, you completely lost the fire in your eyes. And I want you to find something again that brings back the fire. Why don't you become a yoga teacher? And I'm the like, universe was yelling at you. All right. Where's the camera, people? Like, what is going on? And because I didn't know what else to do, I decided to do the training. And that's kind of how my yoga teacher journey started in Canada. That's so interesting. And I find you know, to incorporate a yoga practice or a breath work practice or something that actually calms people's minds. Initially, it's terrifying for myself also. It's to sit there and have no stimulation, to have nothing that's distracting, to have nothing that, you know, can pull you away from the rat race of your brain is so difficult to convey the importance to people and to convey like, yes, you're going a mile a minute at your you know, high intensity interval training, but probably the best thing that you can do for your body is to sit in silence or to move through postures that are, you know, restorative in silence. Um, what do you say to that? Or what, what's your headspace on that? Because I, I do find it challenging to be like, this is the best thing for you. And I know you're going to, you know, put your head up against a brick wall until you actually realize it yourself. I don't think you can convey them. I don't think so. I mean, even for me, I had to, I had to get to a point where my pain, not just physically, but my mental well-being was at a point where I just didn't really have another choice. And I mean, I guess some athletes get into it by accident. Like I'll meet them at a camp and they'll do a session. And they're like, oh, it just makes me feel good. But usually those are the people or athletes that naturally don't really think a lot about anything, which is great. Mm. And then you have the opposite that thinks about everything all the time. That is like yoga, mm, I don't know. Like, and that's when the scary thing comes with, oh my God, alone with my thoughts all the time. Um, honestly, I think you just have to be there when they're ready and just have that sacred space where they feel safe and can really get to know themselves because essentially that's what happened with me through only through yoga I, I got to only through forest yoga I got to know who I was and what I liked and was be was able to to heal everything that I just pushed down and swallowed and didn't want to deal with <laughs> So walk me through the process. So I've done yoga before and I've done super intense classes and I've done yin classes before, but what's the difference between forest yoga and those classes? Um, forest yoga is, for me, it's the ultimate workout because it really, it gets you sweating. It gets you really connected to your core. You're holding the poses longer than in any other forms, but yin, but with yin, you're supported. And it's like therapy at the same time. The difference in forest yoga is are mainly how the sequence is set up. So it's like climbing a mountain. You always do breath work first. 
just to give people the chance to arrive on their mat. And once you're done with the breath work, you start warming up the spine in all directions, and then you get into the core. And forest yoga abs is one of the greatest things I, I've ever got to experience because it really gets you like connected deep down into your lower abdominals, like in between your navel and your pubic bone, like all the abdominals where your creative center is that's in a coma for most people. And that brings up a lot of shit, a lot of shit. That's so awesome. And, it's so hard yeah. to hit there too, right? Yeah. And once you're done the, with the core, you get into more like a, depending where the class goes, back bends or standing poses, inversions. There's a lot of inversions. Um, and then you do a warm up down again. So you're walking up the mountain and then you're at the peak and you're enjoying the view. It's super intense. And you walk down on the other side. It keeps your body safe. You're doing it um, in a warm room, temperatures around 29 degrees um, Celsius. And you're holding the poses longer so you can get that emotional release out of your muscles, your tendons, your ligaments, even your bones. And it can happen that um, people start crying or screaming in forest yoga because, because of everything that is released. And it's only because of the way it's sequenced and the, the warm room that is keeping you safe that even allows you to, to go that deep. And um, the whole anatomy behind it, I don't, I don't know if you know Ellen Heat, she's based in California. And um, so essentially it's like, in a nutshell, emotion become your posture, because posture becomes your structure. And um, there's an emotional component to the um, main structural muscles in the body. Like for example, what I found out through forest yoga, why my shoulder wasn't, wasn't healing properly um, is your pec minors. It's not pec major, pec minor. The emotion related with pec minor is grief. <laughs> dum dum. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense, eh? Um, so I had like very little mobility in my shoulder. Um, I felt like I had the strength, but I couldn't access my strength because of the lack of mobility. And um, I just couldn't get, I just couldn't get in there. It wasn't healing. And you, you have a, you have a focus in forest yoga. So for example, you pick a spot in your body that you breathe into throughout the entire class and see how that spot changes over the course of the class, just with your breath and your, your focus in there. And there was one moment I had, um, it was last year when I went to see two of my other teachers, forest yoga teachers for a pike camp in Greece. We were doing a pike camp, a lot of inversions. And I was like, oh my God, like I've been doing yoga for nine years now. I have been working on this. Like, why can't I just, you know, get that, shoulder going and keep the shoulder blade stable and it was the third it was the third day third yeah third day and we were doing inversion stuff and you know you have all these lightweight people around you with less muscle kicking up into like headstand and arm forearm balance and stuff and like this can't be happening now and 
my teacher came over and she took me back to like a warm-up exercise while everyone else was was doing you know the advanced pose <laughs> that is really hard to swallow for the ego when you haven't done a lot of yoga um and then she brought me to the wall and she like just put her hand on my shoulder that I'd injured and still having trouble with. And she's like, and now feel everything that's still in there, feel the frustration. And as soon as she said frustration, I started bawling and I was right back in that moment after the doctor had told me, you're not playing anymore. You're out. And he, she's like, and now just breathe through it, breathe and feel what's in there and let it out. And I, I was still doing the practice, but I was sobbing for like, 20 minutes and ever, ever since pike camp my shoulder mobility has been like 50 percent better That's because amazing. of that emotional release i got out of it yeah and i think the more that i'm in medicine or the more that i speak to people man this connection is so huge between the mind body and and it seems like woo-woo sometimes when you're getting into stuff and you start to hear somebody's story and they're talking about some sort of pain that they have. And then you ask when it started and there was no origin of the injury and it's just kind of out of nowhere, or it's associated with one issue, but never got better. It, it fascinates me how, when you start to pry open these questions and we start to get to know them and how they work and how their brain works, um, how, hard it is to let go of these things and how to bring awareness to it, how difficult that is too. Do you find for, is there a lot of, um, I guess, like stubbornness for the, the people that come to your classes, especially newbies in terms of associating that mind-body connection? Yeah, what I usually see is when a person walks in for the first time, it's either like, this is nothing for me or, oh my God, what just happened? I want more. Mm. There's no really in between. What I see with a lot of athletes um, is even though they're called athletes, I feel like they're cut off here. Like the connection is cut off here, which is for a reason because they need to be mentally driven and strong to get to a certain point, but there will also, they will also reach a certain point where it piles up in here and they can't keep shoving it down. And eventually they have to get back into feeling. So there is a, it's a very fine line and it's a, it's almost like a masterpiece of a balance to have the, have your mind push you when it needs to push you, but listen to your body when it's like giving you subtle or really obvious signs that, there's something not right. And that's where my work comes in to first make them aware of that lot, like fine line and then, or the edge, play with your edges, really. That's what it is. Make them aware of their edges and teach them how to play with them because so how, they change. Yeah, definitely. How, how do you bring somebody to their edge or determine what their edge is? I know in practice, I see overtraining which what I call is under recovery most times, probably all day, every day. So to bring awareness to this edge, and, and most people fight me on this, whether it's just like a headspace that they have to push through versus their body actually hitting some sort of capacity limit. What is your interpretation of that? Or how do you find somebody's edge? I have them define pain. 
That's interesting. So, so they're like, oh my God, I can't do this anymore. It's so painful. I'm like, okay, we'll stop. Tell me what's going on. Like what's pain? Tell me what, what is pain? Are we talking burning, sharpshooting, pulling? Um, what is it? Although it's just really painful. Like <laughs> I understand it's painful, but like, what is it? You know, I had, um, um, I had one of my goalies that I work with, um, in horse stance so it's like a really wide stance and you have a 90 degree angle but you're leaning against the wall so you're using all of your leg muscles but you have the wall behind you to support you and i put him in there for maybe eight breaths and by the time the seventh breath rolled around he was yelling at me <laughs> he's like i can't take this anymore i need to come out and i'm like keep breathing. Like I'm here. I can help you go. No, I can't. And he's just like so angry because of the release that he was getting. And so I, you know, I was like, okay, like come off the wall and just tell me what happened. So I think you have, first you have to make them aware of the fact that they have edges. And once you get them there, like with an exercise like that, you, you start teaching them, okay, like, this is an edge, like in my head, if you show someone an inversion and they're looking at you know, like, there's no way in hell I can do that. Well, have you tried? Like that's an edge. And then they go into an inversion and they can't like wrap their shoulders properly. You can see that. I usually put my hand on it and tell them to activate that specific muscle and be like, well, can you feel this activating? And they're like, no. I'm like, well, you're not ready then for that. That's an edge too. Mm -hmm. Or if something is actually painful, sharpshooting or burning, don't go there. Like come back out, breathe, and then get into it. But realize where your edge is. Does that make sense? Definitely. That is so huge. And I hope everyone listening replays that again and plays it to themselves because um, it's tough. The headspace that we've adapted for so long is bigger, stronger, faster, push through it, keep going, ask for more, push yourself harder, drive your body into the ground. And I think we're getting to these breaking points when there's other environmental factors. So you can withstand a lot. Like human bodies are so resilient and so adaptable and so amazing, but we hit breaking points when there's too many inputs, I feel. And I think not paying attention to the, the body inputs or the brain inputs is what usually puts us over that edge. So is it truly that injury that ruined your career? Or is it because we hit a mass pandemic, you had an injury, you weren't recovering appropriately and you broke up with a partner, you know? So I think there's a lot of things that always go into these management cases, but most people are looking for like a one and done fix for a lot of things. Well, that's how society works like here take this pill and everything will go away <laughs> yeah and for your classes do you have like a minimum therapeutic amount or is it very much you know you see the individual and assess them based on how they're presenting define therapeutic amount mm. so if they're coming in maybe for a specific injury is it very much so the degree of the injury or like how do you know when they're done or is it like a lifelong practice you hope they commit to? 
it definitely is a lifelong practice because what it does is it it fine tunes your body like if you have if you have and i'm gonna be if you have an athlete that has been working with me for a long time those athletes will know no i'm gonna start over again most of the time um, when an injury happens it's not it wasn't that moment that caused the injury would you agree with me on that Yep. <laughs> so it's so my work is coming back to the edges um, to get them to get them into feeling again. So knowing when, okay, now I need to listen to my head because this is a, a testing or whatever. Um, but they're still feeling. But most part, they're in their head because they're mentally tough and they're pushing through it and they're going to their max, but still feeling. And then I get them into completely feeling not in their, in their head anymore. And once that balance is established, they will notice the little signs their body gives them with a little bit of an ache, a little bit of a pain. But the greatest thing is won't shy away from like not listening to that they'll listen knowing that they have the tools to deal with it because an injury is not the scariest thing anymore because they have ways and tools to work with them so if that fine tuning is already in place and working everything is a little less scary <laughs> because yeah. a you're feeling when there's something off and B, you will look at it and you won't shy away from it, um, which is what I see often um, in all of my athletes or any of my students, like being honest with yourself. That's like a big, 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 big can of worms you can open, really. It sure is. And I think it's the most probably therapeutic can of worms ever, but kind of always going back to that, we want the result without doing the work, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's why, that's why you can't convince people to just, you know, do what you're doing or do what I do. I think they have, most, most athletes have to have suffered for a long time or a significant amount of time to finally get to the point where they're like, okay, I think I'm going to try something else now because clearly what I have been doing is not working. So that's the first step of being honest with yourself already. Yeah. I have kind of like a personal question for that. So in my line of work, I want to help. And it sounds like you do too, from like the bottom of your core, I could see like the passion you put into this and how um, much you love what you're doing. And I always find it very difficult to see somebody who needs the help and just have to sit there and be like, there's nothing I can do about this because you're not ready or you're not actually opening up to this process or you're not actually, you know, willing to put the work in yet. Let's say, how do you, work around that or how do you deal with that it's so tough it's so it's especially because i've been there and you can you know you can see it from another perspective you're like oh man 
But I have learned you can't like yeah you literally have to sit back and and I mean I had I had athletes that work with me for two two years maybe three years um, wins silver medals at uh, worlds signs an NHL contract and. <laughs> I know this is going to sound frustrating, but it, you just have to put into work. And then as soon as you stop your, your yoga routine, shit hits the fan again. Because the, I see this so often. It's like we start, we're doing it regularly. You're getting the results fairly quickly. You're feeling good. Da, 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 da. And then you get to the point where you're like, okay, well, I'm set, all set now. Let's skip this week. Next week rolls around. <sighs> I don't know. Let's skip this week. And then they skip a few times or they don't do it as regularly anymore. And it just, you know, I have stats that actually show that with like goalies, with their um, safe perform performance, the safe percentage. It, you can just see the curve like black on white. But it's like you're brushing your teeth every morning. That's your yoga. Like you're taking care of yourself, body and mind. Mm -hmm. Your capital is your body. Literally, you can't go into the store and buy a new body. No one can. So I think that's where, that's where I am working mainly right now to make them aware of that. Like, why can't you? I mean, we're talking, you don't have to do a 60-minute class every day. If you take 30 minutes... And do the poses that you need to do or the, you know, breathing exercises that help you the most over the long term, you're going to be all set. You brush your teeth every morning. Like, what, what's so difficult? Yeah, I'm always curious what is so difficult. And I mean, I'm preaching to myself here most times, too, when I'm talking about these things, because I certainly fall off track with things. But it's I think it's like the long-term commitment to, I always find my way back to these healthier aspects and habitual things that I know make my body feel better. And whether it be, you know, two weeks off and I have to get back to it because you feel it, right. You feel your body start to change and start to, you know, adapt in the wrong way, I guess I could say, but I am always extremely curious when you put, you know, a relatively simple plan in place in terms of drinking more water and doing a bit of breath work each day. Um, nothing is revolutionary that I'm saying, you know, we've heard this stuff forever of, of what your body needs. It needs to move. It needs to, you know, drink water. You need vegetables, you need nutrition in your life um, and you need really good sleep. And I think, you know, even trying to put these processes in place, like what in life is so distracting or so stressful or so, um, impactful that we can't find our way back to these things you know it just comes down to discipline really it's just yep. it all like that that's what it is and even even like the athlete that this happened to i don't think up to this day he's aware of it i don't think so and they also don't realize it until they come back to class and like ah oh, this is what i could actually feel like yeah. but again you just, you have to, it's not your work, right? You have to sit, you have to sit back and, and be there when they're ready. Because if you keep throwing it at them, they don't, they don't realize they, they're, I don't think they're capable of realizing if you, you know, the suffering has to be at a really great amount for them to make their health a priority. Mm-hmm. 
but most of athletes are already so disconnected from their body that it, it either scares them to even think about feeling, just feeling, or pain is not that great yet. And we'll get there. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, some will, some I don't think will. Mm-hmm. And then their kind of careers over or cut short or a major injury takes hold. Um, and even translating that to kind of the everyday population too, it's like, we're all going to hit capacity and then it depends on what you want to do with that once you get there. And it's always interesting the ways we choose through it. I think there's like a lot of distraction, a lot of, you know, short-term input. And when you talk about discipline, I find this word so fascinating, right? A lot of people come in and say, I know you work with athletes and you must see, you know, um, so much discipline in them and so much, uh, what's the word everyone always uses? Uh, Self-control or self- I don't know. I, I, it's escaping my mind right now, but it's just like that there's this magic thing that some people have and some people don't. And I think like it's a cultivated thing. So I think discipline can be cultivated. I, I, maybe there's a percent of the population that's inherently born with it, but I think also there's like this huge motivation mindset type of deal as if it's like these people wake up motivated every single day. And I think that that's, I don't know. I'd be interested to see what you think about this. I think motivation is very, passive and I think it comes and goes but it's that discipline piece that keeps you adhered to what you're working towards yes but discipline has to be worked on every day mm-hmm. it's like I I would like to call myself a disciplined person but <sighs> temptation is I mean it's it's everywhere right? And um, if it's like, it's discipline, it's commitment, it's priorities, it's values, it's so many things interconnected. I mean, what I'm working on is with the discipline, I didn't have that much success when it comes to discipline. I'm, I'm working on uh, making a mind, uh, mind shift happening in the athletes where they realize that it's not just those few years that they have playing at the highest level. Like what's after that? Like what is the quality of life you want to live when you're done? Cause you will be done eventually. And even saying that is like, people look at you like, Whoa, when I'm done, like I just started. Yeah. But you could be done tomorrow. Let's think about it. And I didn't, I, I mean, <laughs> I worked with, uh, um, a sports psychologist. He's great. I mean, he's a kickboxer. He's in Canada too. He's a kickboxer. He's really an awesome person. He's like, okay, so let's set up plan A and then let's set up plan B. And I knew there had to be a plan B, but I was like, yeah, plan B is not going to happen. It's just, mm." and I had to get to the point of this where I couldn't take the suffering anymore. I mean, there was a, there was an instant the year before the Olympics where um, I didn't get picked for worlds and I thought like, well, before you can go to the Olympics, you need to go to Worlds just to have the experience of being at a big event, you know, like that. And they, I, didn't, I didn't make it. And I found out through a voicemail from the head coach alone in my room in Canada. None of my roommates were around. And I hung up the phone. I'm like, well, you know, doesn't make, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And I told my teachers because I was doing a... Um, 
uh, graduate certificate because I had needed time off. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not going. And my teacher's like, oh, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And I didn't sleep for three months. Did not sleep for three months. <laughs> like just, I was just lying there staring at the ceiling and I felt miserable. But again, I'm like, I don't have time to deal with this. I'm going to the Olympics in a year. This doesn't, it, no, it's not on the schedule. We don't have time for this. And I kept just pushing it off until I couldn't put it, push it off anymore because I was not going to the Olympics. And there's like, you know, I mean, my coaches even said, oh, you know, you, like there's Olympics four years from now. I'm like, I, my heart is broken. I'm, I, can't, I can't do it. And um, had to, had no other choice but start being honest with myself and, finding out what was good for me. And that's why I, I just kept going to yoga regularly because it made me feel so good. It was like we the have one to try thing to had. find out how good you can feel, right? Yep, definitely. And I think that transition out of a sport is probably the hardest thing. Like that's why I named this podcast, the off season. It's like, there's so many inputs and there's so many things to learn to, you know, on the other side of things or even in the actual off season how many inputs you need to make you the best athlete and, and make you again, figure out who you are and all of this too. And I find that super interesting through all of my athletic career. Like no one ever asked the questions of who I was as an athlete. It's just, I love the team atmosphere. I love being a team member. I like, that's how I thrive. That's how I get my workouts in. If the team's there, I'm in, you know, but like to really figure out what type of player that I was and who I was, was never brought up. Do you find that starting to change in sport or do you feel like that's still a pretty big theme? Honestly, I think there are so many people in sports that are just full of bullshit telling people what they need to do mm -hmm. when they should not say a word. With my work, what I try to do is get, get the athlete so confident with themselves and honest with themselves that they can actually like if they get an advice from a nutritionist or from a trainer or from a coach like a strength coach or whatever to ask themselves does that feel good for me when i eat this food does it make me feel good because i didn't do that i was like oh well she told me i need to eat this 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 and that so i did it I didn't question a thing they said to me and that needs to change mm -hmm. because all of those people giving so much advice to athletes are making a shit ton of money mm -hmm. just talking bullshit and the athletes trust them completely and don't question a word that they're saying. So my goal is to have them be like, like this summer I did a camp with, it was under 13 players, and coming back to forest yoga course, I'm like, well, who still does like crunches, you know, like old school crunches. And they're like, you know, maybe 75% held up their hand. And then I just looked at them like, why? Well, it trains our core. I'm like, does it? <laughs> they're like, what? <laughs> I'm like, do a crunch, like do a crunch for me. What do you feel? Oh, well, yeah, my core. I'm like, okay, well, try and do a crunch, relaxing your neck and put your hands on your hip flexors and tell me again, what's working. I know your core is working to a certain degree, but tell me what's really working. 
well, I can't, li- I can't do a crunch when my head, my neck is relaxed. So are you just training your core? And they kind of, when you first say that to them, kind of, they're like, they're oh looking at you like you're an alien. Like, what is this crazy woman saying? Like, mm-hmm. I need to question my coach. Yes, you need to question your coach because he is trying to tell you what you need to do with your body, mm-hmm. not thinking about what's going to happen to it in the future because he doesn't care. She doesn't care. Yeah. No, I'm so glad you're saying this. And I hope the world is listening because, you know, I see so much now on social media and so much now being put out to the world of this is what exactly what you have to eat to become the best athlete. This is exactly how much this is exactly, you know, all of these rules and it's so arbitrary and it's the basic research is coming out of these studies that are are not really accurate to you. You know, they're accurate to like 20, 25 year old white males in university too. Right. So that's the major population that we're studying. And then this whole other group of things with female athletes of, you know, training with your cycle and stuff, Mm -hmm. like everyone's cycle is so different. You cannot tell me in the luteal phase, you're supposed to do X, Y, and Z, or in the flickier phase, you're supposed to do something completely different. And that's some sort of mass generalization that's supposed to go to all of these athletes. Like it's so individualized and with nutrition, you know, probably a lot of my athletes think I'm crazy because I'm like, well, I don't know how does it feel? Well, I'm not sure. Like, what does your body tell you? You know? And they're like, well, you're supposed to tell me. And I'm like, well, you're supposed to give me feedback on what I tell you, you know? So we text all the time and I'm like, well, how'd that smoothie feel? Did it feel good pre-workout? Like, did you like it? Did it taste good? Would you drink it again? And they're like, well, I'll drink whatever you tell me to drink. And I'm like, well, it has to taste good and you have to enjoy the process. And it can't feel like work, you know, every time you put something in your mouth, it has to be somewhat enjoyable too for your body to be somewhat relaxed during it. Right. So I just think I'm so glad you mentioned that point. And I think, you know, we could do a whole podcast just talking about misinformation and misconceptions in the fitness. Let's do it. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's do it. Seriously. Is there any other ones that like really drive you or really irk you that you're kind of like, oh, we have to dispel this myth? Oh man. It's um protein. Protein products. Like and I only I know I this comes from a place of my own, like I, I didn't study this. I felt the effect on my body. Mm-hmm. Like I, I trained um, two summers in Arizona with a, a bunch of NHL players. And, um, we were in this facility that like covered everything, including nutrition. And obviously they had a sponsor for their protein powder and their protein bars. And, you know, the mainstream stuff of that is just packed with sugar. But I ate it because they told me to eat it. And, you know, I had like two protein bars a day or protein bars, a snack, protein shake after the workout. I had the worst acne of my life, Mm -hmm. like to the point of I was ashamed to go outside because of just mass, like little planets forming on my cheek. And I never once questioned what I was eating to be the cause of that. Yeah. Never. Until um, I met my friend um, who's doing holistic nutrition. She's like, well, I know you're looking at like the nutritional value on the back of the packaging of the product, but do you actually look at the ingredients? 
like the ingredients it's protein well take a look let's and then she took me grocery shopping and she's like well take a look at this take a look at that and oh my god like the i mean we're talking years i had just bad skin because again i did not question a single word they told me i just eat this okay you want to get to this way eat this okay just didn't i mean obviously it was super sweet and i kind of liked eating them but if i were to eat one now i'd be like oh my god what is this and it's just crap it's in there yeah and the gut rot and like digestive issues that come up with protein powders is unbelievable and you know these athletes come in and say like my stomach is rocked every time i every single day and i'm like well what are you putting in your body every single day and it's usually some sort of like supplementation or they're not sleeping because they're taking pre-workout before their night workout you know or getting on the ice and with tons of pre-workout in their system and I'm just kind of like man these little things have to be educated on because it's a huge thing that we're interrupting in terms of gut health or in terms of you know a good night's sleep and that age-old sailing saying is still passed down like god love the people that are volunteering their time to coach young athletes. Like that is a heroic thing to do, I would say, but also like it's a lot of grandfathered in processes of well, carb loading before a big game or whatever the standard thing that you used to do, you're passing along to these kids. So I remember university level hockey, we would stop at Smitty's, which is a restaurant here. That's, I don't know, pretty crappy, I guess. And you had two options for pasta. It was um, fettuccine Alfredo or like, a full on meatball and like spaghetti sauce and stuff. And I knew when I ate the spaghetti sauce, it would come up, come back up on me. I'd get a bit of reflux. And then my other option was like this super cheesy chicken Alfredo. And I have that like two hours before a game and wonder why in the third period, my digest, my insides were just dying. Right. But never putting that together and never having anyone say like, Hey, you should think about what you're putting in your body before you start to play. And it took me, you know, four years later when I went to, um, to become a dietitian that I was like, okay, there's a huge difference here of, of what the actual facts are and, and how your body works. Um, and then some athletes would be fine with that. So it's, it's really, you can't put a massive saying out to anything in terms of nutrition for these athletes, um, which I find so frustrating to see all of the time them being bar- bombarded with, you know, mass plans to do this, this, and this for any athlete. And it doesn't make any sense to me. Oh, yeah. And it's so, but like at the point where I'm now, I think I, I get more fascinated pretty much by, by the day of how your needs change of your body. Like I have people come in like, oh, I, uh, you know, I, I didn't eat dinner because we were having pasta and I didn't think pasta was a good thing before yoga. I'm like, well, did you think it was a good thing? what do you mean? Can I eat pasta before yoga? I'm like, well, if it makes you feel good and you have, I like do it. Yeah. Or with myself, I noticed like coming back to the cycle to a week before my, my, um, my period starts, I just need, I just need food. Like <laughs> I just out eat my husband, but I, I can also tell Mike, okay, now I had enough. Like I need buttery pasta right now. And I need like, I don't know, I'm just going to start eating. Then I have maybe two bowls. I'm like, a little more. Okay, I'm good. Or um, example during pregnancy was 
gummy bears. I hate, I just, I despise and it disgusts me to eat gummy bears. But for half an hour in my pregnancy with my daughter, I needed gummy bears and I ate. And, and here's the thing, like I indulged, I didn't eat the gummy bears like, oh my God, this is disgusting or they're so bad for me. I'm like, oh, this is really, this is making me feel good at the moment. And after the half an hour, I didn't finish the pack, but I was like, oh my God, okay, that's it. I, I have not touched gummy bears since, but at that moment, it was the best thing ever for whatever reason that I needed. And my yoga teacher actually, um, she touched on that in, in one of the very first classes that I went to with her. And she was describing it with a bowl, bowl of ice cream and how the guilt sets in when you treat yourself but it's already called like you're treating yourself. So find out what you're craving. If you're craving ice cream and you're having this ice cream bowl in front of you and all you're thinking is like, oh my God, there's so many calories, all the sugar in there. Shift your thoughts and picture how the fats and protein in this full fat ice cream are gonna feed your body and give it what it needs right now, which is this bowl of ice cream. Mm -hmm. Completely changed my eating, completely changed the way I look at food. And being able to accept the fact that when I need chocolate, maybe for five minutes, just until this is satisfied, whatever it was that it needed it. Obviously, now I make sure it's with the best quality. But I also eat crappy gummy bears because I just craved crappy gummy bears at that moment yeah it's <laughs> yeah and our body like is trying to tell us something and I it sounds like I mean we've just met today on the internet but it sounds like you're very intuitive with your mind would you say like you would have to get to a point to be there so I know they create foods that are you know extremely hyper palatable and there's a massive um, intuitive eating kind of mindset that's that's starting to be put out in the fitness industry and put out in, in um, nutrition realms, but they've also created food that is wild. You know what I mean? Like if there was a donut tree back in the Neanderthal times, I think obesity would have been an earlier problem than it is now. Like we're looking for the most hyper palatable um, calorically dense food with tons of sugar and fat, because that's that adaptation tool of our body to be able to, you know, keep mass on ourselves and not be emaciated. So do you think like when you look at the mass population that they would have the same ability as you to stop at five minutes? No, no, definitely not. And do you but think that, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think that that's something that can be trained or learned or um, developed over time? Yes, absolutely. I, I'm 100% convinced. And it all comes back to being honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. Like this, I mean, forest yoga has given me so many tools. And I almost want to say I'm in the shape of my life right now. And I maybe do 60 minutes of yoga a day, if I'm like, it's my priority to do yoga that day, but it completely changed the way I look at at, at everything and it comes back to like we're shot off here we just I mean all of this this sugary food it it 
it created an addiction to sugar in in our in our society and if you're feeling with your body it doesn't make you feel good when you eat it but if you listen to your head and it's like oh my god this is stimulating everything and it makes me feel good and part of the forest yoga foundation training is actually um for example if you want to stop an an eating habit that you you know you just want to let go of it's like the question was so if you think of the food that you go to mostly when you're feeling uncomfortable or disconnected picture that food and then find out what it does for you like what feeling that you could actually create yourself is it replacing that's pretty huge and that to me was like wow so i'm going to say for the majority of society is comfort mm-hmm. but you can and then when you find out what that feeling is figure out what else gives you comfort does your yoga practice give you comfort so coming back to the discipline instead of going and eating that food or going buying that food and then eating it can you just take 15 minutes do some breath work and a couple of it doesn't take a lot mm-hmm. like do a breath exercises and two poses you'll feel a difference mm-hmm. but yeah feeling coming back to feeling like how yeah. does that make me feel not your head but your body and i think being honest with yourself is probably one of the most difficult things that you could do on planet earth i'm sure what what would be like some initial steps if people are like continually dishonest with themselves that you would could bring them back or like you would start to educate them on what being honest even looks like or how to even start that process that's a huge question sorry that is a huge that is a huge question i mean being honest takes uh an immense amount of courage because i believe if everyone were to be really honest with themselves they wouldn't be doing what they're currently doing as a job mm-hmm. or being with that person but having to change that is a bigger effort than just keep doing what we're doing so it's um It's a baby step process really. I mean, you How do I start that? Maybe even your example, so it was a lot of honesty that you would have had to kind of start with to get to where you are right now. Do you remember like the initial stages or the initial things you became honest about that you know were so life changing for you? Well, it was when I started being honest with myself, the feeling that I got was so much relief. <laughs> like it felt like the rocky mountains fell off my shoulders that I didn't have to pretend that I was that I was okay anymore. Mm-hmm. That being vulnerable is actually a strength to me. that was revolutionizing um i actually <laughs> it's funny when i was training in arizona um 
I went to see a Cairo. Nah, he was more than a Cairo. I'm going to call him a sports doc too. And he, I was still training for the Olympics and he recommended me to watch the peaceful warrior by Dan Millman. Have you seen that movie? I haven't. No. Okay. Must um, watch. Watch it. Okay. Yes. Tonight. <laughs> okay. Done. So he told me to watch that and I watched it and I was like, the end of the movie. I'm like, okay good movie I think and then I watched it again like five years later after this whole yoga journey started and I watched I'm like oh my god (laughs) like he I felt like he could see exactly where I was headed and wanted me to watch the movie to realize it but I was not in the headspace to realize it because I was a under time pressure because the Olympics were approaching and I always thought of vulnerability as a weakness. If I were to, here's an example. So before I got cut off the Olympic roster, they had so many great stories of this head coach. He's a, he's a great person, but it's just some things could have been solved differently he actually so we finished lunch and I was about to go down to the locker room um, and he's like oh Des uh, come over I want to talk to you quick okay so he sat me down and he looked at me and he's like I just want you to know that there is a good chance you're not going to make the cut today I'm I'm about to go play this last game (laughs) of this camp. No. Yes. And you're telling me I had great chances that I will not make it. I didn't say anything. (laughs) And because in my mindset, it was like vulnerability is a weakness. I didn't tell anybody. I went into the locker room feeling worse than shit. Last thing I wanted to do was put my skates on and go play this game because all I could think about was there's a good chance that you might not make it today. Um, You can guess it. I played like shit and got cut. But if I were to be in a similar position again today, I would go and so I didn't tell anyone because I was like, okay, like we have this really important exhibition game. I can't like you know, um, disrupt the mood of the team. We need to win, da, 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 da. I would go and tell someone. I would probably tell the coach. I would, I'm at a point right now where I would be like, that you, do you really think this is a good thing to tell me right now? Like, do you even want me to play? I don't think I can play. Mm-hmm. Just speaking it out loud, what scares you is a, is a massive step of being honest with yourself because it's like, as soon as you bring light into the shadows, the monsters disappear, right? Yeah. So talking about it. It's so scary. It. Yeah. Talking, That's like, that would be, yeah. Probably the perfect answer to that. Just starting to say these things because that's when you get reinforcement or feedback or I don't know, a a check on your own reality too, right? Like I know how I feel in my brain and sometimes it's probably insanity what goes on up there, but to like say it out loud too and to have somebody, you know, interpret what you're saying or seeing it from a different angle or even talking to a yoga practitioner or a coach or a trainer or a nutritionist or something, it's, 
just more insight, right? To, mm -hmm. to get to some sort of actual truth versus those lies that we tell ourselves often too, right? Mm -hmm. There's a great, I'm going to, can I go and grab my binder quick? You can for sure. <laughs> So this, act, this is actually the binder from my first um, teacher training that I did, yoga teacher training that I did with Louise Cameron. And I made this like, just this, Ooh. I put this quote on there and it's actually that quote from Peaceful Warrior. And <laughs> that was the most liberating thing um, I, I have heard in a long time. And the quote goes, a warrior is not about perfection or victory or invulnerability. He is about absolute vulnerability. It's pretty wild, hey? And I was like, what? What? All of these things that I thought in my mind were true and what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and you know, weakness, that vulnerability is a weakness and you can't talk about how you're feeling. It's it's bullshit. But also, I'm convinced that we don't have enough people around professional athletes where they can be vulnerable. Yes, I would agree 100% with that statement. And that's where, like, my work comes in. And I think a lot of professionals in the field are afraid of that because you're not going to be vulnerable to a coach. You're not going to be vulnerable maybe to a massage therapist but again at least in switzerland a lot of those people i mean i'm sure they do great work but kind of friends. like it's an honor for them to work with those athletes mm -hmm. you're not going to tell your gm obviously because <laughs> he's the one that um you know pays your salary you are not gonna like who are you gonna tell mm -hmm. who are you gonna talk about those things with and that's where I've had a lot of really cool things happen when I worked with athletes um, that all of a sudden they were telling me these things. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but it's actually better. Yeah, you're talking about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's wild what gets pent up and stuffed down and you wonder why there's chronic illness from it you know yeah. well we don't have like there's no space for vulnerability in professional sports there yeah. is none and i'm so curious like again fine line of opening up the floodgates and then also you know maintaining that strength but where do you see that line happening because it's hard being an athlete is hard no matter what way you put it out into the world and a lot of jobs are hard but what do you think that line is? And do you think it differs for everyone? Between being extremely vulnerable to the point of being maybe, do you think there's such thing as like too open in terms oh, of like losing that strength piece? Absolutely. of Absolutely. Yeah. You like have to carefully choose the person that you're going to open up to. Mm -hmm. Like so careful, like you were investing a million dollars, like, who are you, who is the person you're going to trust with a million dollars that might just might be the person you can be vulnerable with. Well, I wouldn't recommend it because we're talking about money and they're going to make money off of it. So, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, 
And there's a, there, there might be a different person for different topics to be vulnerable about. Um, sadly, it can, most of the time, it can't be your partner, I don't think. I agree. Um, friends, it's tough. A neutral person, sometimes too far away. So it's like, there might just be a right person for mo vulnerable moments. Like you can, if, if it feels right for you to open up. No, I'm going to say it differently. If the person deserves to hear your story and your vulnerability, then do it. But that's the thing. They have to earn the right to hear it first. So how are you going to do that? Right. You, I mean, for me, I share my story. I, I have athletes that have told me, you know, crazy things. And the thing that bothered me the most when I got cut off the Olympic roster was I had so many people come up to me and be like, oh, I know how you feel. It's going to be okay. I know how you feel. And I just wanted to grab them and yell at them and be like, you have no fucking idea how I feel. Mm -hmm. You don't know. And when I have an athlete in a vulnerable position like that, I, <laughs> I'm not going to tell them to, that I know how they feel. I literally look at them like, listen, I have no idea how you feel. Mm -hmm. But here's my story. And here's how I handle it. Does it suck? Yes. Is it going to hurt? Like hell. Mm -hmm. Will it get better? Maybe. Mm -hmm. And even that honest response back, like maybe this will sit with you for a really, really, really long time. Maybe this injury is going to keep you out for a really, really long time. But I think also a lot of the work that I try to do or, or I hope practitioners are doing is this informed consent piece too. So if somebody's trusting you with that vulnerable aspect of things, there's a capacity of how far we can help them or there's a capacity of what our input can be. And I think even for health or wellness or mind space or headspace of things, it's just like, we're not going to fix it, but we're certainly here for you. I don't know if you can, if anyone can fix it. I don't mm -hmm. know if, if, if the, the athlete suffering himself can fix it, but the thing that I can do is show them tools, how to lessen the pain, try them. Um, it sucks. Mm -hmm. It does. And sometimes you really need to hear that. You just, I mean, sometimes I get tears in my eyes um, when athletes tell me these things, but I'm not trying to hold them back because that's who I am. Like, I'm a, I'm, I have so much empathy for athletes um, that, you know, I, I still, I'm still healing from what happened. I'm, this, I, this past summer, I actually um, told my story for the first time in public and I, you know, I had prepared the PowerPoint and I knew kind of like what I wanted to touch on. And I had told my friends and 
obviously my family over and over again, the story, and I shared it on social media, but to actually speak it out loud, I, I hadn't done before. So I was sitting in a room of like 30 kids under 12 <laughs> telling my story. And when I got to the point of that October 4th, 2009, where I got cut, I could feel like my throat getting dry and like getting watery eyes. And obviously what's going to be the first response, like you have to be strong in front of these children and show them that you're okay. But I couldn't do it because it hurts me more to not be honest than to just be authentic in who I am. And I started crying. I like had tears running you know, down my cheek and I had to kind of pause a second and they were all like looking at me like that. Like, oh my God, is she going to be okay? And I kept as good as I could. I kept continuing the story crying and that was so healing, but not just for me, like even for them to just, you know, I mean, 10 years after that happened, how much it hurt me. And the crazy thing was I actually met um, one of my teammates from the national team in one of those camps. And, um, and she, she heard parts of my story. She didn't, she wasn't there for the whole thing. She heard parts of my story. And uh, a week later she texted me. She's like, I have been thinking about like what happened to you and how you must've felt for the past week. And that's not okay. Like we shouldn't, we shouldn't have just let you deal with it alone. I mean, they were obviously everyone was trying to make the Olympics. I'm not expecting you to come help me lick my wounds when you have a dream to, you know, follow and the dream will come true. But she like so <laughs> affected by that. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I read the text I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to start crying again. But she was like, that's, that's not okay for us as a team to just, I had no idea. Mm. She said, why you could you could possibly not have an idea because I didn't show you that, that weakness. I didn't tell anyone. I wasn't in the right place to share that. But it was so cool for her to also recognize that it can't that can't be how it it's being dealt with. Right. Yeah. And we see sports and athletes sometimes as like entertainers and that's what they're there for. And you know, this multi-million dollar industries who broadcast them on television, like they all have families, they all have lives, they all have, and, you know, oftentimes you get the narrative that, you know, oh, they're getting paid to do what they love. Like, well, how could you ever think that that's a tough go? Or, you know, female athletes specific get barely paid anything to to try and make it in in whatever sport that they're in. But, you know, people ending sport or having to leave their sport is always such a pivotal thing that happens to people. And I think like it transcends a lot of their health um, history as well. And oftentimes in conversations with patients, it seems to be such a, a pivotal thing that happens to people, whether the sports ends and that final piece of things is created the story of they're not good enough because they didn't make that team. And that persists everything that they do. Or as soon as they stop playing sports, um, their nutrition went to shit and they just became, you know, they didn't go to the gym anymore because they didn't feel like they were an athlete anymore and didn't take care of their bodies. And then you see the progression from there. And so oftentimes when we talk about sports as if it's just some, 
like luxury. It's also a part of so many people. And I think, you know, looking at it like that, it's, it's a bit of a disservice to what athletics actually is too. Absolutely. The danger thing, the dangerous thing that is happening though, is that athletes completely identify themselves with what they do yeah. and they lose track of who they are. Mm -hmm. What I see so much is that they, um, they identify their self-worth with the performance they're giving and it has nothing to do with each other. No, absolutely nothing. And that is one of the most liberating things that I had seen in athletes happening that work with me is I'm telling them like, this is something that you do. This is not who you are. Yeah. You, the only thing you can control is you can go out there and you can put in your best effort, hoping for the best result. But the result doesn't identify your effort. You, again, being honest with yourself, you have to be honest with yourself and if you can step off the ice and say, this was the best effort that I could have possibly given tonight in this moment on this particular day, you're fine. Everything else doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Like your mom is not going to love you less because you lost today. <laughs> and you'd be surprised of how many athletes go, really? Yeah, really? Yeah, but... The press, and then here's the next thing. I don't read what the press is writing. Yes, you do. Yeah. You do. And you write, you read it really carefully, and you evaluate every single word that they're writing about you. And then it's hard to remember that because from the outside, that's all you hear. Mm -hmm. mm, lots of family members treat you like that, partners treat you like that. Um, kind of like a trophy. Mm -hmm. So how do you remember who you are when you have everything around you telling you who you are, who you, what you do? Yeah. And feeling, coming back into feeling, feeling like your own body. Where are your edges? Like, where does my foot end? Um, getting out of your head. I like to say that when I feel... <clears throat> fucked up in my head which is what a lot of athletes especially on high levels feel is I go and unfuck my mind with yoga mm -hmm. but so many people don't have the so many athletes don't have the tools and they fuck themselves up even more mm -hmm. with drugs any sort of drug or um, eating or I, I you know like harming themselves it's, it's fucking their mind up even more. And I unfuck my mind, like coming back to feeling, feeling my toes, feeling my fingers. Where's my body start? Where's my body end? It's, and, you know, it just, it just kills me when you then hear stories of um, athletes committing suicide because they have completely lost track of who they are and, and think they are worth nothing now that their career has ended. It's so, it breaks my heart because it's so unnecessary if we would just make space for this vulnerability in professional sports, mm -hmm. like yeah. proper space, not people that are a friend of a friend of the coach or whatever that take on that role, but that have truly deserved to be in that place mm -hmm. and um, honor that, you know, sacred space for them to for the athletes to be vulnerable 
and protect that. Like it doesn't, nobody has to know about it. Yeah. And I often feel too, what, you know, high level athletics are what's setting the stage for the general population to adapt. Right. So if we see, you know, people at the highest level who we admire and, and what are kids doing at a young age, they're wearing jerseys of their favorite players. And, you know, when parents, commend the athlete on the ice for toughness. We adapt that. We're listening all of the time. And young kids are always, you know, modeling behaviors of what they see. So if we could start at the highest level of opening up those lines of vulnerability, what could that transcend to you? Could that like be everyone, you know, and having this understanding of the people who are worth telling your story to, could those be more plentiful and those people less be less scared to hear the stories? And I know ever since I was, I don't know, probably like, I couldn't even put an age on it, but I always feel like I had this sign that across my head that said, tell me your story. So going out drinking or something, I'd always have, you know, somebody in the corner of the bar telling me whatever happened to them. And I hated it for so long. I was like, I'm just trying to be here with my friends and I don't really want, and I, I will give you all my time because you started to speak about it, but I'm like, I'm just tired of the story. Um, and now I really have to put it on a pedestal as a bit of a gift and, and why I'm doing what I am today. And um, I think there's tons of people out there like that, but shut it down pretty quickly. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, you, because if you are the person, if you're the listener, you need tools to deal with what you're hearing too, yes. right? Yes. And you yes. need to be aware of, you need to be able to set boundaries. Like, mm-hmm. okay, this is your story. I'm listening. Um, and here's my boundary. And trying to see it as, as a gift, but also setting boundaries as if it gets too intense or they think they can handle it and be able, be able to say that. Mm-hmm. And I think if I, I don't had seen more, you're, I'm the right person. Yeah. Like, yeah. Again, be like being honest with yourself. Mm-hmm. If you think you can't, you get to a point where you can't handle mm-hmm. the story, then, you know, have the, have the decency to tell the person. And I don't think they should be offended. They should be thankful that the other person's being honest. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, like naturally, I just, I can't lie. Like I'm a, such a bad liar. Honestly, is like, honesty is one of my ha- highest values. And I grew up in a family that didn't talk about anything really. Um, and when I, you know, started this yoga journey and came back to Switzerland, having done, like having evolved like that as a person coming back to the very same setting that I had left, one day I just exploded. I'm like, I was like yelling at my, at my parents. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Like I need, when I'm not feeling good, I need to talk about it. And I don't care if you say anything or not, but I just need you. I literally said, I was like, I just need you to sit here and listen. Please don't walk away or shake your head or make a comment. Just listen. I just need to get it out. <laughs> they were just like, who are you? <laughs> It's amazing though, right? And I think, you know, if kind of going back to what we were talking about, if this was more commonplace and we saw more people who were listeners and more people who felt um, the ability to be open or felt comfortable being more vulnerable, then I would say like this world would change fairly quickly. You know, if we could actually convey how we felt instead of putting this giant mask on it and saying everything's fine, then everything changes, right? And then the listeners feel supported by saying boundaries and report and, you know, 
putting people off on somebody else who they felt was more qualified for it. And if these lines all became more open and be just, I would think amazing. Yeah. And especially like all the people that are in charge of the money in professional sports, you'll get something out of it too, because if this is your best athlete and he feels like shit on the inside, but he stills the best player, think about what this guy can do or this woman, if they feel amazing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Think about that. Yeah. And how much longer they could play and how much more they could add to the game and their willingness to give back to the game that they felt so good in and their, you know, post-sport coaching opportunities or educating opportunities and they become the listener like it's just like this full series of transcending information and I think you know in tribal communities and how we used to live more of a community setting this was probably more commonplace you spoke to people and people receive your information and and I mean like doesn't have so much to do with athletics but I think potentially or hopefully that's the way we move back to or something like that instead of being so isolated on you know our phones and not communicating as much and I definitely don't have all of the answers but that feels a little bit more right to me than what's going on right now I would say oh 100 percent it's and it's um such like it doesn't take a lot of money it doesn't take a lot of time it just takes a good listener really (laughs) And I can talk to you that's all what day. I that's what I that's what I call sustainability mm-hmm. essentially definitely so hopefully that's the way we're going well I mean you and I are going to be stay committed to the cause I'm sure and I hope we have so many more conversations like this because you're a, a, like a gem to talk to it's a, very informative and it's so nice to see you know somebody of a similar headspace of just wanting to help as much as possible right that's awesome yeah, it's really feels good in my soul. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how I would describe it too. Like this just felt like a really good heartfelt conversation. And often, you know, I we don't always get to have these. It's very rushed. It's very on to the next. But this podcast uh, platform has allowed me to have a bit of these longer conversations. And sometimes it takes, you know, 45 minutes to get to know someone. And then the good stuff starts to come out. And, and I'm so appreciative of you sharing so much information. Um I always like to leave the listeners like if you could go back or if you could leave one piece of information for your younger self or somebody in a similar position as a male or female athlete, what would you have said or what would you have done differently? I know so many, I hear this question asked a lot and so many people say, I would tell my younger selves that everything is going to be okay. <laughs> Let's get a little deeper than that one. No, I'm not going to say that because <laughs> my younger self doesn't want to hear it. And I don't want to tell my younger self that yeah. I would, um, I would probably say to my younger self, it's going to hurt like hell. It can, you will have some scars from everything, but, and I'm gonna end this with a Brene Brown quote because it's such an amazing quote. Owning your story will be the bravest thing you ever do. I love it. I would would tell that my younger self. That's awesome. All the hurt and messiness and scars, all of it. Owning your story will be the bravest thing you ever do. 
And bringing you to the point to where you're at today, where can people find you or where can they learn more about uh, the type of yoga that you practice and teach? Um, you find me on Instagram, uh, Desire in Balance, or just with the hashtag Hockey Yogi. I post a lot of uh, educational stuff on there. I have an online Hockey Yogi class every Tuesday. Um, so this is 6.15 p.m. Let me get the time right. CET. So Central European time. So we are five hours ahead of you, um, like Eastern Ontario, Canada, where I was six hours ahead. So it's still a nice lunchtime break and you can sign up online. It's over Zoom. It's um, 45 minutes. I always tie it in with a little bit of educational information about breath work or positioning your feet and stuff it's not just for hockey players it's for any athlete it's for any human being really um so it's those two it's my instagram and the tuesday tune in i call it awesome i'm definitely gonna check that out what about what you're doing in ontario with uh the lawson boys the lawson boys (laughs) actually we are having our first camp together next summer here in switzerland it is a, is a camp that is um, changing exactly what we want to see changed. Um, an approach to training that equally nurtures your body and mind as much as your training. So it's a combination of on-ice work. It will be a 45-minute warm-up, yoga warm-up, tied in with mobility stuff to prepare you optimally mentally and physically to take on or take in what they're teaching you. It's uh, Luke Lawson, who's doing the skating part, and Tim Turk, who's doing the shooting part. They're both NHL coaches. And myself, we have two other coaches there supporting us. Um, We've all been in, almost all been in the shoes of athletes, and we're kind of changing the uh, camp setting. So coaches are there. To listen, you have time to ask all of your questions. We will be around at all times. It's not like, oh, the day's ending. We're going back to our room. We are around. We want to help you. We want to make you better. Mm-hmm. It's a hockey yogi skills development camp. Um, and the website is hockey yogi camp dash uh, hockey yogi dash camp.com. And uh, might be back in Ontario soon for the summer too and work with the Lawson boys and their players. That's where I started with I the lost boys and uh, all of their players that I used to train with was then teaching yoga. That's so awesome. I love what you're doing and I'm so excited to see what you accomplish next. And we'll definitely uh, have to get something going down the line together. Absolutely. I agree. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that very much. We'll have to put our minds together and figure out what that's going to be. For sure. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for your time. I really appreciate it. And I also appreciate all of your insight and beautiful words. Thank you. It was my honor to be on this podcast with you. Awesome.